that Memorial Day, Sunday, that weekend is usually the low point of attendance. Because uh -huh. uh, people kind of take some time off, and rightfully so. But, uh, we're glad you're here, and I want to begin by trying to finish up last week's lesson. We had uh, a couple of questions right at the end, and, and I was uh, somewhat perplexed over how to answer them. So I want to go back to those as we begin this morning. And you can turn to the 24th chapter of Matthew, verse 15, which revolves around verse 15. And uh, the first question is, or in regards to this phrase we find at the end of verse 15, that's in blue right here. So the verse reads, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which is spoken of in Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, the question is, is this a part of what Jesus said, or is this something that Matthew added, be just as inspired, because he was writing inspired scripture? And I'm not, I'm not sure we have a definitive answer. But probably the easiest way to look at this is, is probably what Jesus said, and when he says, let the reader understand, he's talking about the reader of Daniel 9, which is what he is referring to in this verse. So he's saying to the disciples who would be readers of Daniel 9, when you see this, <coughs> let the reader understand. But he's also speaking prophetically. So perhaps he was saying to the people that will see, actually see the abomination of desolation, in that day, they would have Matthew 24, they would have the New Testament, they would have everything Daniel said. So they could be readers, so let the reader understand. But what he was not doing, we, we, I think we can narrow this down here, what he was not doing was saying to the disciples at that moment that they could read what he was saying at that moment. Obviously not. So, whether it's prophetic, let the people in the future that read understand, or whether he is perhaps saying to those he was speaking to, uh, what you read in Daniel 9, which is what he's referring to, understand that. Uh, I'm still not 100% clear, but uh, I think those are the, the possibilities. We're not uh, in any way, shape, or form, obviously. None of us would doubt the scripture and why it's there. It's just, you read something like that, it's kind of puzzling. And, and I, I've read it, I don't know how many times. Never even thought about it. So when I got the question, I was a little, you know, uh, perplexed as to which way to go with it. So I've had a week to think about it, and that's what I came up with. Maybe you uh, have some idea, too. Now, as to what it is exactly that they should understand, I think Luke, in chapter 21, verse 20, helps us with that. What he wants understood is that this is this, the abomination of desolation, 
is near. Right? Then recognize, no, excuse me, let's say that over again. I got that wrong. Luke says, then recognize that her desolation, that's not the abomination of desolation. That's the desolation that follows, and we're going to show you that when we get into the lesson today. That's the destruction of Jerusalem, the invasion of Israel that will take place in that day. So the understanding has to do not only with what was said in the past, but what was about to happen prophetically. Is the next step. To, is that referring to 70 AD when the Romans destroyed the temple, and, or is that something else? Well, I, I don't think 70 AD is in, in view here, you know, okay. personally. Uh, there's some probably would interpret it that way. Uh, I, I think, going back to this, he is, he is speaking prophetically. Let the people in the day that see the abomination of desolation understand there's, and recognize, there's a further desolation of Jerusalem and Judea that's going to follow. And you'll see this when we get to the next verse. And first, there was another question that I also got to deal with, and that uh, is this. In the New American Standard Version, you'll notice abomination of desolation is capitalized. Why? Uh, when I guess I didn't know the answer. I guessed that, I think. But, uh, when I went back to the New King James, it's in a singular italics, or not italics, uh, quotation mark. So it's obvious then from the New King James translation, this is a quotation within a quotation. Jesus was quoting, excuse me, Matthew was quoting what Jesus said, and within the quote, what he writes that Jesus said, Jesus quotes and uses the term abomination of desolation. So it's put in a singular italics. It does not mean that there's nothing in the original there. You know, sometimes we see italics or something like that, and we think that, but that's not what it's doing. Now, once we understand that from the New King James, then it seems pretty obvious that the New American Standard, instead of using the singular quotation marks, yeah, singular quotation marks capitalizes the quotation within the quotation. That seems a little strange to me, and I look in the front of the New American Standard and it doesn't tell you they do that, you just see it. But if you want to see this, a confirmation, you can go to Romans 12, when Jesus, or when uh, Paul says, Never take, never take your own revenge in verse uh, 19. And then later on in the verse, he quotes and says, It is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And it's all caps in the New American Standard. So, someone pointed that out to me. I was talking to this with one of my friends. We were discussing this. And, it, and so, yeah, it's not stated anywhere in the New American Standard that that's what they do. But it's obvious from... Romans 12, when you back it up, that's exactly what they're doing here. It's confirmed by how uh, the New King James does the same thing, just uses a singular quotation mark. 
I see that uh, Daniel quotes it in uh, Daniel 9 and then again in Daniel 12 where he's talking about the, the, the abomination that causes desolation. So apparently that is a quote that Jesus is referring to. Yeah, I think the quote that, that he's referring to here is in Daniel 12, 11 where it actually says abomination of desolation. Yeah. It doesn't say that specifically in Daniel 9, one we've been looking at. Very good point, thank you. Okay. This all gets wound up in confusion in my mind. <laughs> sort this out, so. Uh, I'm afraid my explanation was not as succinct as I would have liked. But, okay. I think it's time to move on. <laughs> oh, by the way, I forgot I put that in. It's a quote of Daniel 12, 11, the exact wording. All right, so let's go on now, beginning at verse 16. And first of all, uh, we want to just set our context again. Having completed an overview of the tribulation, that's all the way through verse 14, Jesus returns to the midpoint of that and deals with the abomination of desolation, as we talked about last week in verse 15. Then, now we're ready to move on. So, uh, he went on to give a more detailed analysis of the second half of the tribulation from a primarily Jewish perspective. And we used this chart last week to kind of get it in our heads. Verses 4 to 8, he talks about events that are clearly in the first half of the tribulation period. We know that from the book of Revelation. In verses 9 to 14, he talks about events that are in the second half after the abomination of desolation. We know that also from the book of Revelation. But then he circles back, if you will. We have this recursive structure. He, he's finished an overview of the whole, but now he comes back to the midpoint, and he gives us a new perspective moving forward, and that perspective he labels, or that period of the second half, he, in this text context here later on, uh, calls it the great tribulation, or a period or a time of great tribulation. But this is specifically applicable to the Jewish believers in that second half of the tribulation period. So everything he says, beginning at verse 16, all the way down to verse 31, when the Lord returns, we'll cover all that this morning, what he says in this section is primarily geared to the Jewish people. He's speaking to Jews. He's speaking to his disciples. The book of Matthew was written for the Jews. Uh, we just have to understand that context. The book of Revelation, as we noted last week, is broader in general for everybody. But it will include things in it about the Jews, and this section will include some things here that will affect other believers worldwide but it's primarily addressed to the Jewish believers of that time period. The first thing we note that will happen in verse 16, now I didn't put these verses up on the screen, so uh, there's just so many of them to whiz through. Maybe I did, I never did. No, I may have done some of them later, but I, I did not do this. Look at verse 16. Then, okay, that comes after the abomination of desolation, verse 15. Then, let those who are in Judea, 
then, excuse me, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And he's talking about Jewish believers in Judea. He's talking about a, that little area that, that's uh, where the Jews have lived since 1948 as a nation and many thousands of years ago it was a St. Conference. So Jesus says when believers in Judea see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Daniel 9.27, they should flee to the mountains. That's a very general thing. Luke, in Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse, adds, or rephrases it this way, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So there will be an invasion of the Holy Land immediately after the abomination of desolation. So the Antichrist, by the way, comes and he stops the worship in the rebuilt temple. He sets up himself as a god to be worshipped in that temple. And he brings the military might to enforce this. And so there is an invasion of Judea. This invasion of the Holy Land by the Antichrist is prophesied. Joel chapters 1 to 3. Ezekiel 38 and 39. Zechariah 12 already chapter 14. Now, for those of you that probably several of you are or are quite well versed in prophecy, you probably know that Ezekiel 38 and 39, the invasion of Gog and Magog of Israel from the north, is placed at different times chronologically in prophecy by different Bible teachers. Some place that invasion before the rapture. Some place it after the rapture and in the tribulation period. And those who do, some of them place it in the first half. And others see it as an ongoing military campaign that stretches all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ. <coughs> what I'm presenting here sees it that third way. It's an ongoing campaign. That's probably the beginning of it, and probably connected with this invasion. Eventually, you can see those who place it earlier think the invasion of Ezekiel 38 occurs, God destroys those armies, and then later there's another military campaign leading up to Armageddon. Certainly could be so, but the other way of looking at it is the destruction of those invading armies happens if you if you think it's an ongoing campaign it stretches to the second coming that destruction of those armies happens in conjunction with the coming of jesus at the end of the tribulation don't get hung up on this okay we don't have to figure all this out and it, as soon as we get dogmatic about prophecy uh, you know we're probably going a little too far in some cases because there's so much that we don't know and it's not been revealed. You can't always be entirely dogmatic. But what I'm presenting here is the abomination of desolation coincides with an invasion of the Antichrist from north, south, east, all around. Judea and Jerusalem is put under siege. The destruction of those armies will occur at the Battle of Armageddon later. 
This invasion will involve a gathering of armies in the land of Israel and the siege of Judah and Jerusalem. Just a matter of reference, we call the tribulation began with the making of a covenant between the Antichrist and Israel. <clears throat> this is the breaking of that covenant, beginning at the midpoint. The siege will continue throughout the second half until the final battle of Armageddon in Revelation chapter 19. I would ask if you have any questions here, but I'm not sure I could answer those questions either. <laughs> but you're welcome to, to ask one if you. Maybe it's just something we want to clarify. Or, I understand this is a lot to just throw out there because Matthew 24 by structure is an overview. So you now we could spend weeks here and go to Revelation and go back to the Old Testament, but that's not our our goal and purpose. But there may be a burning question here. Do you want to throw out? We've got some time, so just make sure we are in the ballpark. We don't, you know, we don't have to be in our seat. We don't, we don't have to be in a certain spot. We don't have to know everything. But are we in the ballpark here? I just think okay. it's interesting the word, that he says... Fill in, invasion. Yeah. I just think it's interesting that he says those who are in Judea. Like he doesn't say all of Israel. So in looking at what Judea consists of today, like the Gaza Strip and, and, and various places that are already under attack by, you know, probably Iranian proxies. But, um, like, that's going to be where the persecution is, is where those people live. That's where the worst of it's going to yeah, be. Yeah, right. I think there's going to be some worldwide persecution by the Antichrist if you look at the whole of what uh, Revelation says. That's going to be the worst of it. It's not going to. It's going to be directed to all believers worldwide. It's going to be specifically directed to Jewish believers. That's that's the focal point of it. And you know why? Why just Judea? I mean, Israel stretches to the north. What what would have been Galilee? I don't I don't know the answer to that. Uh, maybe Galilee will be conquered. Previously, or I mean, I don't know. There's all kind of conflict there today. Or maybe this is just—he's just speaking of Judea as being the center. Maybe it includes the whole. This is why you don't always have every detail. But uh, yeah, there's a reason why Jesus said this to the Jews here. Okay, he's speaking to the Jews. It's a Jewish perspective, but. That's the center point. That's the focus. What it's, Satan's always been about destroying God's people. Back to the days of Esther. Back to World War II, the Nazis. I mean, it's there's persecution of the Jewish nation. And they're not necessarily believers in Christ, but persecution of Jews today in the world. Satan knows the promises God has made to the nation of <coughs> Israel. So it always is his within the scope of his efforts to try to eliminate it. Okay, so along with this invasion, your next word here is flight. The flight of Jewish believers. Verses 17 and 18. Let's read it together. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get things out, out that are in the house. Whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. 
That's that calls for immediate action. No delay. Now look at verses 19 to 22. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Okay, if it was on a Sabbath day, it would be noticed. That's big, this big group of people moving about because it, the Jews don't do much on the Sabbath. If it had been be in winter, it would be a difficult time to take that flight. Probably on foot. You say, well, why would they just get in an automobile? Because once everybody tries to get out of town in an automobile, nobody gets out of town. Um, at least that's been my experience. Uh, verse 20, 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. In verse 27, excuse me, let's go on to verse 23, actually. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here's the Christ, for there he is, do not believe him. So, so far we have this. You've got to flee immediately. Don't stop to take anything of value. Go from where you're at. Once you see, once you know the abomination has taken place, flee to the mountains. That's not very specific, because in Judea there are nothing but mountains. If you flew, flee east to the Jordan Valley, the mountains go away. You can flee south and be protected for a long way, or southeast, south, uh, yeah, southeast toward the. Uh, Dead Sea. But they are to flee and flee immediately because the danger is, is incredible. They're going to, the Antichrist is going to be killing all the Jews that have any association with belief in Christ the Messiah. Then verses 23 to 26, once they're out of town, they've got to be careful. That's where we're at in verse 23. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. And then verse 27. Behold, I have told you in advance. You've had your warning. Uh, <clears throat> according to book of Revelation, these events coincide with the last series of judgments mentioned in the book of Revelation. It's all the second half. And it, 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 it encompasses those things that are part of the bowl judgments and the trumpet judgments that precede it. I thought I had a reference here. Mr. Reference here, but I think we, I think it was on last week's uh, handout and slides where God would prepare a place in the wilderness to protect those who flee. So somehow they're going to be directed to find that place, and God is going to supernaturally protect them from harm. And 
And we talked to like last week about, you know, many, many are martyred, but many are spared. And that's, that's in God's sovereign plan and purpose. Uh, but this is the situation for Jewish believers in Judea. Any questions at this point again? Okay. So, so the elect mentioned here in two verses, one, uh, for the elect's sake, sake those that are shortened, and to, uh, to deceive if possible in the elect. Those are the believing Jews. Is that who that group is? I think in context, you, you would consider the elect here, the elect of God's people, believing Jews. Um, but I, I think it's probably also a true statement worldwide for God's people, believers everywhere. Uh, by the way, this flight, if you compare what Luke says, his account of all of that discourse, when he says, let them flee. It's, it's an imperative verb. It, it basically says, flee. Do it now. Don't hesitate. So God's providing a way uh, for those who see what's happening, something for them to do to protect their lives in this manner. Uh, but this is the time in which the false prophet does the miracles of you know, the false prophet to serve the Antichrist does many the miracles and things that he does. And this will be a time when uh, quite likely the at some point the Antichrist is assassinated, satanically empowered to come back to life. There's various interpretations of that, but that's one of them. That, that is what that's all about. There's plenty of reasons for even people that are believers to think Maybe I'm wrong. You know, look at all this. Look at this miraculous event. Look at these things. And, and, that, and Satan's going to be bringing that strongly upon the world, worldwide. As so he's warning them, don't, don't as, fall for that. As a deception. Yeah. 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 And the shortening of the days, remember, he's told us exactly how long tribulation is going to be. Exactly how long the second half. He's not talking about shortening that. I think he's just speaking in a general sense that if God had to put a limit to it, it's already set. We know when it's coming. But if God had to limit this, there would be no one survive. What, what the Antichrist and Satan is doing. I think it's kind of interesting too when he says when you see the abomination of desolation let those who are in Judea flee I mean if you're in Judea just anywhere in Judea I mean that's a technological statement basically he's saying everybody's going to see this yes. I mean they're not all going to be standing there at the temple looking right. but it's going to be you know, technologically possible for everybody to see it it'll be blasted by even, even if there was some who didn't have the means technologically to see it, somebody they know would, would and would, could tell them. I mean, it would be a note back. Next, the sign of his coming. Verse 30. Look at verse 30. 
And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now, let's back up a little bit to where we left off. And look at verse 27 and lead up to that. We kind of let that, let that out. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes, even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. So his coming is going to be instantaneously observable. And then he says, uh, and this is just a proverbial statement here, wherever the corpse is, there is vulture, the vultures will gather. Uh, referencing something we'll come back to. So let's just move on. But immediately then he says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will be, not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. So again, that's things that we can find in the book of Revelation happen in that second half right before Jesus comes back. But remember, let's go back to the beginning. The, the original question uh, <clears throat> verse 3 and as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives the disciples came to him privately saying tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming now compare that to verse 30 then the sign of the Son of Man will appear and the question is what is the sign which is, occurs right at the end. The sign will be in the sky. And when, it, the sign is not specifically defined. We don't know specifically what it is. Maybe it's the lightning reference here to a great, grand, and glorious light that will be something lighter and stronger and more powerful than the light of the midday sun. If that's the case, though, it will be generated by God Almighty. Uh, he is the light of the world. <clears throat> so, I think the best explanation here of what the sign is, is it will evidently be the actual visible personage of Christ returning to earth. sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. In the sky. That's where Jesus is going to be. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Well, why? Well, the, the unbelievers, the Antichrist crowd, those that are about to be defeated on the battlefield, and Armageddon, they're all, you know, this is not a happy day. This is something supernatural. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. Well, who will see? All the tribes of the earth. Which means his coming, although it will suddenly instantaneously appear, it's going to linger there for a while. And his approach to earth probably going to be very slow and deliberate. The earth either 
revolves and everybody can actually see this in the sky. Uh, due to our technology today, or possibly, but more than likely it'll be slow and the earth will rotate. Everybody will be able to see with their own eyes. And they will see him coming and they begin to mourn if they are, you know, unbelievers. So eventually he will come and he will come to the Mount of Olives. He'll enter back in that eastern gate, set up his, begin to set up his kingdom there uh, in Jerusalem, the temple area. And they will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. There's the indication of the light again. The glory of God. And all this is described in more detail. Revelation 19, 11 to 21. In more symbolic terms, but it is there in great detail. And then finally we have the judgment that will occur at his return. This is verse 31. This is after he has come to the earth, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the one end of the sky to the other. So he gathers out all that believe. Now, we, this is the beginning of the judgment. And it begins with believers who, who survive the tribulation, who will be gathered together, and they will enter into the millennial kingdom. Now, we studied Matthew 13. We found the same thing here. The angels separate the believers, the unbelievers, the judgment of the nations, all that. It's all taking place here. It's all summarized in verse 31. Now, if you're just kind of like a deer in the headlights right here, you know, you're like, this is a lot to kind of give a grasp of. Just don't feel like you have to get a grasp of every detail. This is meant to be an overview. It's, it's, it would take a lot of, a lot of weeks of study to really solidify this. And, and for that to happen, we'd all have to become experts in biblical prophecy. And we, we are experts in biblical prophecy compared to most all the world, but we're gaining a little bit on it every time we hear it. It doesn't, you know, get it all at one shot. Any further questions before we go on to an application? <clears throat> so the, the word elect there just means the believers? What was the question? The elect will be gathered. The ones that are chosen, the elect, believers. We shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't jump to any conclusions about our belief in election versus you know, predestination, free will, all that. that. That is not really entering into this because all that exercise faith in Jesus Christ and that become believers we are then chosen or elected to go on to glorify him so he'll serve him throughout eternity and I think that's the emphasis basically here. 
here's just a chart that's more simple than the one we use that has all the, a lot of stuff on it that's really busy. So if you want to take a picture of it or let me know, I can send you a copy of it. Uh, but anyway, what we just covered is right here and the return of Christ right here. And the setting up of the kingdom that will follow on earth and the final judgment of the resurrected unbelievers individually and that eternity. She was going to a church in a town that was about 13 miles from where I was in school. I was a senior in college. We were planning on getting married after I graduated, going on to seminary. But I attended church with her. It wasn't very big, probably maybe the size of our church here, maybe a little less. And uh, when I was there, they announced this. I don't remember whether it was a Sunday or a Wednesday service, what it was. They announced on a specific night of the week is our visitation night, and we're going to go out and knock on doors. So, uh, I'd never been to a church that ever had done anything like that. So I figured, well, if the whole church is going out and knocking on doors, we ought to be there. So we made plans, and, and we came, and we showed up on the night at the time, and we walked in. There were three people there, the preacher and us. <laughs> and I was scared to death. I, uh, if that's the way we're supposed to do evangelism, and I'm supposed to tell people about Jesus, then I'm here, but I have no idea what I'm doing. Graciously, the pastor sent us to visit a lady that he knew, and she was already a believer. She was a nice, sweet lady. We had a nice visit. And, but after that, I'm thinking, like, nobody's doing this but us, and we don't know what we're doing. I don't think we ever went back after that. Uh, it's frightening many times to be in a situation such as that and have no experience with it. And... In this day and age, it's probably not a very effective way to tell people about Jesus either. But anyway, that brings us to our application. I just want you to take a look at 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. If you go to the next verse, and I probably should have put that up or maybe I didn't. Let's see. Yeah. Verse 8 says, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. He's, Paul's talking to Timothy, who is a pastor, who is associate of his. And Paul says, God's not given us a spirit of timidity. The, the New King James says a spirit of fear. And it's not the word phobos. It's not the general word for fear. It just means you kind of uneasy reluctance. God hasn't given us that kind of spirit, but a spirit of power. Now that's the Greek word dunamis, which means ultimate power, the ability to do something. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, when the spirit has come, 
He will give you what? Power. Let me, let me quote that right. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's what Jesus told his disciples in Acts 1.8. That's a prophecy. That's a promise. We all have the power of the Spirit to do what the Spirit wants us to do. So, there's no excuse for not doing what God has called us to do. Well, what motivates and motivates us so that we are not, what motivates and enables and empowers us so that we are not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord is this power supplied by the Holy Spirit and God-like love, a God-made love, which He produces in us by one of the fruit of the Spirit, right? And He says, New American Standard, discipline. The New King James, though, says a sound mind. But the word in the Greek means self-disciplined mind. That's why the New American Standard inserts the word discipline. I wish they would have translated and a disciplined mind. So how do we how do we access the power of the Spirit and the love produced in us by the Spirit? We have to have a disciplined mind, and that focuses on God's truth. And all that we know that he's provided for us, promised us, and so on. But when we talk about prophecy, and we think about what's going to happen, that's scary stuff. Now, we can always say, well, thank the Lord we're not going to be here. That's true. But if it happens tomorrow, we all have people we know, loved ones who may not know the Lord, and they would face it. It's just frightening. You think of all of this. And yet, God doesn't want us to be frightened by what's going to happen. He wants us to be empowered by knowing the outcome. He wants us to be more sure of our testimony and more motivated to tell people about Jesus Christ and so on. Now, I think that's probably the best application I can think of for this section. Not everybody is an outgoing personality that can just witness to anybody. I've had friends that are like that. I've had people in my church, fellow pastors, evangelists I'm associated with, that they can just walk down the street, and before they get one block to the other, they've shared the gospel with four people. And I walk down the street, and I get nothing done, because I'm just a different personality. I, I'll get there eventually if I get to know somebody. Um, <coughs> I'm not very good at, you know, cold turkey, I don't even know this person type of evangelist. And I don't think a whole lot of us are. So not being ashamed does not mean that we have to be a flaming evangelist who, you know, corners everybody and that we meet and tries to force feed them the gospel. But it does mean that we love people, develop relationships at the very least, and we love them enough and we can be honest enough with them about what we believe and who we are, who we serve, that we can impact lives. Any remaining thoughts? I hope you're not going to give us a pop test on this. <laughs> I have a question. Let me, let me give you a book that will help. I really want to... Aside from the Bible, <laughs> it's, it's on Amazon. It's called the Olivet Discourse. 
and the author is Sam A. Smith. Sam A. Smith is a legitimate expert in biblical prophecy. He's, he's with me as the Lord now. Uh, I knew him personally. <coughs> I have his book and I've leaned on it heavily for what I presented to you. The Olivet Discourse, I think it says a reconstructed text and commentary or something. Uh, subheading. But to Sam A. Smith, the Olivet Discourse, I don't know what it costs. He gave me my copy. I, it's probably $20 or $25. It's very scholarly. He's got a lot of Greek and stuff in there, but mostly that's in the footnotes, so you don't have to know Greek to, to get the gist of it. Uh, and you can rewatch the podcast, too. <laughs> I, I do better from a book, so I'll, I'll just give you that recommendation. But we're going to move on. We've got chapter 25 in there. It's going to be a lot easier to kind of, you know, we got all these details and facts and chronology in our heads and stuff, yes. In verse 31, it says, And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Why wouldn't it say from one end of earth to the other? You would think it would say earth. Mine says sky. Says what? My guess is just a general way of describing the whole of God's creation, the heaven and the earth, and he just went to the outer limit of heaven. Uh, I don't really have any answer other than that. That's what goes through my mind. Maybe that could be a question for next week. <laughs> well, when it says uh, he will, they will gather his elect from the four winds, you know, if you take that literally, the winds are above the earth. Yeah. Um, perhaps there's some astronauts in the space station, which is cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it encompasses the whole, is the point. All right. It's going it's to get more interesting. This, this chapter 24, a lot of events, chronology and charts and details and facts. And we're going to get into more things that we can really take our teeth into.